If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Back to school after the long weekend. My tummy is already queasy. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, baby. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Yeah, we're, it's Wednesday. We're halfway through the last week, unofficial uh, ending of the summer of 2023. And I say unofficial. Uh, kids heading back to school. It's just got that feel to it, especially today, because it's kind of cool outside. So, uh, but, but the long weekend, whoo we get the Speedo out because it could be one of, if not the best summer uh, weekend of the summer as temperatures expected uh, into the high 20s and uh, low 30s as we head into a long weekend. So, man, uh, blow it up. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a good one. What a way to uh, to finish it all off. All right. Uh, lots going on. Uh, and we'll circle around with all of this uh, new nanos poll. Out. We were talking about this yesterday. 18 to 29 year olds. This is the young sweet spot demographic for uh, the prime minister in, in his sunny ways campaign. Now, Nano's poll, we're going to talk to Nick Nano's later on on the show about this. 18 to 29-year-olds, a liberal sitting at 15%. Behind the NDP, who are at 30%. Behind the conservatives, who are at 39%. And I heard someone on the news say the liberals are down in women, men, and young people. Well, who the hell else is left? <laughs> so... Anyway, so 39% of young people uh, looking to the conservatives, 30% to the NDP, and only 15% to the liberals. Uh, the sunny ways, the fancy hair, and the socks have worn off, and they're more concerned about kitchen table issues like affordability and how do we get a house. All right, what else we got? Oh, bees. Watch this if you're in the area of uh, Guelph and Dundas, because they've left some hives behind, so the bees will come back. Long story short, an accident there, and a beehive uh, truck carrying beehives goes off the road or has an accident dumps the cargo and um you know the fun ensues and uh yeah that's what they're doing there at the corner or in the area of uh, guelph and dundas uh in burlington as they try to uh get back the bees that are floating around but the big news of the day Get ready. Uh, Housing Minister Steve Clark has been found by the integrity minister to have broken uh, the Members Integrity Act in at least two in at least or in two occasions in regard to the land swap deal with the Greenbelt. So uh, heavy duty news. And obviously, I, I expect that we'll hear from the premier before the end of the day. And that this uh, minister should be out or if not out already or in the process of. Uh, but yeah, if once you get to this point where uh, there's questions of integrity and ethics, especially over an issue that is such as sensitive, uh, the housing minister has got to step down and this has to be addressed by the premier. So uh, we'll see what happens there. OK, on the other hand of this, uh, the official opposition provincially is uh, is uh, Merritt Stiles with the NDP, because, of course, the liberals, uh, do they have a leader. It's a temporary. Uh, no? Uh, anyway, uh, they can all fit in the back of a, a, a minivan. Uh, so the NDP, of course, are uh, doing as much as they can, as they should, as the official uh, opposition. They should be bringing this stuff to the forefront. But again, um, this this minister and this party has to be held accountable to this, but we also cannot lose sight of the fact that we have a housing shortage because of the, because in the last 20 years in Ontario, the left has not been built homes. And with the last years of the federal liberal government, has not done anything to aid this in any way. So I really do believe, because let's be honest, the left doesn't build, the right will build anywhere on the head of a pin if they could. Um, but the left isn't interested in doing any of that. So rather than build and focus on the mistakes of the last 20 years in this province with the Win McGinty government and not building anything, uh, they're focusing on the, the trials and tribulations of Doug Ford, which is an easy target for the opposition. Let's be serious. But the important thing here is 
we get the housing bill. Are you surprised this is happening when we're rushing after 20 years of doing nothing? So rather, or as well as holding the premier accountable for what has happened with his housing minister, we also have to hold those accountable that have got us in the position that we're in, in this self-inflicted housing crisis, which is not building enough and bringing in too many. It's very, very simple. It's very simple supply and demand. So anyway, here's what uh, Merritt Stiles of the NDP had to say about uh, the housing minister resigning. So we need we need to call it what it is. Corruption. It's been clear to us that Mr. Clark needs to resign. We've been calling for that for three weeks since the Auditor General's report was released. Now. It's time that the premier needs to do his job and kick him out of cabinet. Enough is enough. And uh, the NDP leader on what's her objective? My interest in this at the end of the day is to return the land from the Greenbelt, uh, from these developers to the Greenbelt. I want them to reverse course. Uh, but I do not see how I do not see how this government can stand by this decision now. There's no way. They need to reverse course immediately. Nothing that they have done uh, will have the trust of Ontarians that any of this was in their interest because it has never been about housing. It was not about housing. And it is, and to this date, it is not about housing. All right. There you have it. That's the leader of the NDP, Merritt Stiles, on all of this. So, um, and, and you know, you got to love the politics and all of this. But at the end of the day, it's people don't have homes. And we need to get more homes built. This government has to be held accountable for what has happened in the housing minister uh, ministry. Absolutely. But again, um, to make this more dramatic than the fact that people are living in tents in virtually every town and city almost across the uh, across the province. Come on, let's move on. At the end of the day. This housing minister should be gone. They should be held accountable, as should the premier. But let's not lose focus, because still the the NDP's objective here is to put that land back to the green belt. Now, does that mean that the stuff that they put in to make up for the stuff they're taking out, it goes out too? So again, the focus here is on the green belt, not on putting young people into homes. I believe that is terribly misguided in a country as vast as Canada. The green belt is a great idea, but it needs to be analyzed and it needs to be debated every single couple of years. Well, I'll say see, I'll say every year because this problem is going to be with us for the next 20 years because we haven't built in 20 years. So have you ever been on a, uh, a flight, especially like a really long haul flight, like going over to Europe or wherever. And, um, And it can get a little distracting, especially if you're doing like the red eye and you're trying to get some sleep. Well, there's an airline that has added child-free sections on long haul flights. The first 12 rows compromising of 93, or will compromise rather, of 93 standard seats and nine extra large seats curtained off from the rest of the aircraft with a strict over 16 rule. To talk more about all of this. You ain't going to get this on a plane to Disney. That's all I can say. Uh, Barry Choi with us, travel and uh, travel expert who is with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So just to clarify with all of this, it's uh, 16 years and over. And these are specifically long haul flights like those 10 hour type of flights, eight to 10 hours, that sort of thing. And it's specific to a single airline and appears to be just a single route right now, uh, Amsterdam to Curacao, uh, oddly enough, on on an airline that's based out of Turkey. So it's very specific. Uh, Yeah, it sounds interesting, but I'm not really buying into it. Why aren't you buying into it? Are you surprised? Uh, You know what? For, For this kind of airline that doesn't have like a big brand presence, if you want to call it that. They're, I don't want to say they're looking for gimmicks, but at the same time, you know, all, quite often you see these small airlines, they come up with these ideas that, that just gets them a lot of media coverage and it kind of gets mm. their name in the headlines. And that's what they want. You know, I remember a couple of years back, uh, Ryanair floated the idea that they're going to charge to use the washroom or they're not going to have seats, period. And every single media outlet covered it. We talked about it and it's fun to talk about it. Um, but at the same time, y- you know, will this airline 
turn down money from a family with kids that wants to pay for those upgraded seats, there's no chance they're they're not going to turn they're going to turn down that money. So is this uh, just a different section of the plane, or is this is this basically first class for sixteen and over? To me, it sounds like first class. And if you even want to call it first class on this kind of airline, uh, yeah, it's a long haul flight. Uh, I think I was reading somewhere it's got like 16 seats or wait, nine seats or or whatever. Uh, and you just look at the aircraft. It's a 3-3 configuration, three seats on each side. So you've got three rows. Uh, a better definition would probably be premium economy. It's not like you're getting those lie flat seats that you see right. on your Canada and other major airlines. So yeah, it's a long haul flight. It's but to me, it's a glorified 16 plus. You know what happens if you know the family decides to buy uh, seat row number four? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it, you're literally yeah. You're still technically speaking in the 16 plus section. You're still going to hear the kids right um so to me it's a bit silly uh and, and at the same time you, you know as an airline uh, i'd be very careful about that messaging you're you're promising uh you, you know your passengers exclusive area which is technically true adults only uh but i could see people complaining and filing lawsuits if, if one child cries on the plane do you know mm. what i mean yeah, it creates more problems than what it solves. And, and the, you brought up another valid point. Uh, you know, you see, in, in as you're sitting in the in the in the in the mid or the back of the plane when they pull the curtain across for the the people that get to sit at the front who are paid extra to do so. Uh, I can't really see a curtain stopping the sound of a baby crying. <laughs> Might be some kind of magical soundproof invisibility cloak that we don't know about that maybe this airline has figured it out right uh but yeah you know you think about it you're you're in a small aircraft it doesn't matter how big the aircraft is uh you're still going to hear this children on the plane right but at the same time i do think it lets people feel like they're in an exclusive section and some people Mm. naturally want to be uh further away from kids you know i recently flew to san francisco and i'll be honest i flew uh, at the front of the plane i flew in business class with my daughter and and as soon as we sat down, the woman sitting in front of my daughter was shooting my daughter daggers. And my daughter is six. It's like, lady, we paid for this seat. We have just as much of a right to be here as you. So stop giving me uh, the stink. Wow. Of wow. And I mean, I mean, it's not like you got a crying baby sitting next to you. Yeah. You know what? She wasn't crying at all. My daughter's six pretty well behaved. But I will yeah. say this. When she started smashing on the in-flight entertainment and bothered this woman, I kind of laughed. <laughs> I'd be yeah. no time to stop my daughter. Right? <laughs> yeah, Feel free to kick the back of the seat. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this is nothing new here, really, Barry, because we've talked about this before in some form or another. Uh, yeah, not every, every airline tries to come up with the gimmick. Some ideas are better than others. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's funny, you know, we're talking about this, this airline based out of Turkey. That's doing this one route again from the Netherlands to Curacao. Uh, but at the same time, you, you know, every single airline comes up with new things. And I, I think some ideas are, are better than others. You know, for example, let's think about local for uh, more recent terms, air Canada. They recently announced new menu options that actually helps every single passenger. Uh, they've got new entertainment options. They've even got April spritz now. Uh, they've improved their app. So as a regular flyer, a regular traveler, I'm more interested in, in benefits mm. or changes that can that affect me directly, not this quote-unquote adult-only passenger or yeah. adult-only section, right? Good point. Uh, state of air travel right now, Barry, as we head into the fall and winter travel season, how are we doing? Obviously, coming out of post, uh, post-pandemic and such, is it completely back to normal? I don't know if completely back to normal will ever be a term I'm comfortable using. Yeah. Uh, but I will say this much, you, you know, in the last year or so, we've talked about huge delays. Uh, generally speaking, almost every single airport has staffed up, right? So you're seeing less delays as far as customs and luggage handling is concerned. That said, obviously, some days there's more staff, there's there's more planes. You never know what's going to go on. Weather is obviously concerned. Just look at what's going on down in Florida. Uh, yeah, try to tell an airline to fly around a hurricane, right? Uh, and and as as I mentioned, you know, a lot of airlines have improved their services. So I, I think traveling is exciting time. It's an exciting time to travel. But that said, I also acknowledge that it's become very expensive. I was just about to say, any deals to be had, Barry? You know what? There's always deals to be had. I always look at, at websites, Air Canadifications, aircanada.com, Aeroplan. Uh, if you sign up for the mailing list, they always alert their most loyal customers first. And honestly, sometimes just booking out super in advance, a minimum of five months. If you can book even 10 months in advance, that's where you'll see the lowest prices. Barry Choi, travel expert with us, uh, seating in the fall travel season. Barry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
No problem. Have a good one. We talked a, a while ago about uh, the situation in Russia and Putin. And, of course, uh, the chief of uh, the Wagner, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, mercenary army, which uh, at one point looked like it was going to stage a coup heading to Moscow, then turned around and went the other way. Then the next thing you know, Putin lets uh, Bergozi off and then... Uh, just last week, down in a plane crash goes uh, the Wagner chief along with uh, the staff. Now, the Kremlin acknowledges that the Wagner chief's crash may have been deliberate. What does that mean? Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, and that is at the University of Toronto and with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hello. So your thoughts on this, uh, initially, I think Putin said that uh, he flatly denied any sort of um, uh, involvement in it or that the crash might be deliberate. Why do you think there's a change of tone here? Well, it is rather um, it is rather puzzling because he could simply say it was an unfortunate accident and everybody would understand that he was behind it, but um, but didn't want to say that. So um, saying that there may have been um, someone else behind it um, seems like a change, of course. Um, it's worth noting that some Russian official TV commentators have began talking darkly about Western involvement, whether the U.S. or British. So um, perhaps um, perhaps Putin thinks that it's to his advantage to muddy the waters and suggest that some of his opponents may be um, behind this incident. Um, um, it would be interesting to consider, related to that, who he's trying to convince, whether it's people in Russia or, or perhaps um, uh, foreign um, supporters that he would like to keep on his side. So is that the allegation, that it's some sort of uh, Western ally that did this? Well, as far as I know, he hasn't said that yet, but that um, has been suggested on, on uh, pro-government uh, media. Um, so I guess the question would be, what what does he have to gain from suggesting that? Um uh, I think maybe one one way to look at this or one point to keep in mind is that I'm not sure that this is exactly um, like a, a Western official trying to establish the causes of an, of an incident or, or people in, say, Canada trying to understand what happened in a confusing incident. I think maybe if we think about it in the following way, it might sort of make more sense, which is that in Russia, it's possible to have your cake and eat it too and res with respect to public opinion. So you can both sort of stage an event where everybody knows that you're behind it and you've made your point, which was that that um, defiance of, of your rule will be fatal. And at the same time, um, you can also um, you can also muddle the issue as he seems to be trying to do now and um, evade um, responsibility for it with people that you would like to um, um, think or at least be able to pretend to think that, that you are not uh, involved in a, a bringing down an airliner like that. So, in other words, uh, about making a point, uh, not admitting that you did it, but not admitting that you didn't do it, keeping both sides of this discussion happy? Yes, I think you put it uh, very well, indeed, much better than I did, right? So, um, I don't know that it's necessarily to Putin's advantage for, say, um, um, the government of Brazil, um, where this aircraft was manufactured, to have to be... Um, Defending their connection with somebody who apparently was involved in in um, in attacking an airplane in midair, um, causing the death of a number of civilians. Um, it's worth noting that Brazil is actually quite friendly to Russia at the moment. They're both um, part of the BRICS group, and Brazil's uh, president has made a number of statements that are quite pro-Russia in relation to the invasion of Ukraine. So. I, I'm not saying that Brazil is necessarily the only target audience, but I'm simply trying to suggest that. Um, there may be an attempt to kind of uh, create plausible deniability for purposes of, of international consumption. Uh, where was it again exactly this aircraft went down? What, what state was it in? It was in a region of, of uh, northwest Russia um, uh, outside of Moscow, um, not that far from where Putin has one of his estates. Uh, it's been suggested that that um, that uh, he, that Prigozhin had been there or was on his way there. Um, and was and the plane exploded in a in a uh, and I think a lightly populated area. Um, so um, it's certainly well within Russia's borders. Um, there is no strictly international dimension. Um, I'm not sure whether you covered in in your um, report on this that um, Brazil had offered to be involved in the investigation. I suppose because the the 
the jet that was uh, that was destroyed uh, was manufactured in Brazil. Um, that offer of help was was turned down by Russia. So um, um, I don't know, but it's interesting to consider whether um, the uh, decision not to launch an international investigation with the help of the country where the plane was manufactured may be connected to sort of the sort of new new line of um, uh, new narrative emerging from from the Russian government that that this was a deliberate incident, possibly engineered by by um, by NATO. Is anyone asking there how Western allies downed a jet within Russia? Yeah, you might ask. You might well ask that question. Um, I don't know that um, uh, that the Russian media are currently up to the standards of the Canadian media in terms of um, uh, asking tough questions about official official stories. Um, to you and me, that might sound very implausible, but it's quite consistent with sort of the um, the general depiction of a uh, highly nefarious and effective uh, West that the Russian government has adopted. In particular, I might add, since the war effort in Ukraine has been bogged down over the last year and a half and Russia has failed to uh, achieve its objectives of ousting the government of Ukraine, um, they've kind of emphasized the the, the foreign, um, that is NATO or US um, involvement on behalf of Ukraine. And um, perhaps given that um, existing kind of narrative that might make it um, particularly appealing to attribute this incident to to the West as well. Um, I was about to ask you, Matthew, where this was going, but my guess, or, or it's going nowhere. It will just uh, float out into the stratosphere and that will be it. Will anything come of this? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that from Putin's perspective there has to be a kind of resolution. I think mm-hmm. as as long as the ambiguity is maintained, um, then perhaps his interests are served. So, as others have pointed out, a lot of um, Russian um, disinformation campaigns um, sort of have as their goal the creation of confusion or doubt. Um, and um, you know, an example of that would be their involvement in in. Um, the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. Um, a lot of a lot of the current sort of strategy of the Russian government when it comes to uh, intervening in Western media involves um, uh, not so much creating a kind of consistent counter narrative, um, but simply destabilizing existing existing arguments. And I, I I would tend to think something similar is going on here. Putin, on the one hand, wants everybody to know that he did this and that it's dangerous to cross him. Hmm. On the other hand, you can't quite say that, and it might be convenient in other respects to be able to pin the blame on on his uh, Western um, his Western uh, boogeyman. And so, I think he can sort of leave it there that 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 um, you can believe what you like, um, depending on what what is convenient um, for him to have you believe. And the sad part is the confusion is not only with the allies, but within Russia itself. I mean, he's he's doing the same thing to the Russian people, just keeping them on the edge and wondering what's right, what's wrong. Yes, uh, there is actually a kind of a fascinating debate among um, political scientists who study public opinion about how to interpret um, public opinion in, in Russia and other similar political systems. And of course, it's always difficult to know what people think, right? And um Conducting surveys is a very complicated um, is a very complicated project. Um, in the context of Russia or similar authoritarian regimes, um, there are all kinds of additional layers of ambiguity about the extent to which people feel that they have access to information, whether they are capable of um, sort of challenging even in their own mind official sources, whether they're simply highly skeptical and cynical about all news. Um, so, to some degree, all of those factors may be at play here. I, at some level, though, I can't imagine that most people in Russia do not understand that Prigozhin's death is the result of his defiance of Putin. And um, mm. I, I uh, whether or not this is reflected in in um, public opinion surveys, I, I would assume that um, most people have have internalized that in some way. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, University of Toronto. The Kremlin uh, acknowledges that the Wagner chief's crash might have been deliberate. Matthew, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
My pleasure. Take care. We talked yesterday. Uh, things are going to change come February regarding sports betting advertising with celebrities and athletes who will no longer be allowed to endorse those sorts of prod, uh, products. How did we get here? Has it gone far enough? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University, here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and glad to be with you. Marvin, are you surprised we're here? Because I think once this all started, everybody just said, wow, this is way over the top. This isn't like you're buying another ad for KFC or Coors or pizza or whatever. Uh, you know, this is taking product placement to a whole new level. It, it is, but can I, can I just put this in a little context for you, Scott? We've had two industries develop in Ontario over the last three or four years that didn't really exist before. The first one is cannabis. The other one, of course, is uh, sports betting when it comes to individual games. Now, both industries today in Ontario are generating about $2 billion a year in revenue. But the provincial government took two different strategies to those industries. In the case of cannabis, they highly, highly, highly regulated this. You could only buy the cannabis from certain sources. You had to pay a certain price. You could only have a certain markup. You couldn't do some promotion. You couldn't, they all had to be individually owned stores. And now that the market is starting to mature a little bit, they're starting to relax some of these. And we've begun to see, for instance, chains of stores develop. When it came to sports betting, the government went the opposite way, hands off, thinking, okay, we'll just let the, the industry do it. They know what they're doing. They won't do anything outrageous or wrong. And suddenly we have this kerfuffle around using recognizable celebrities. So it's the opposite. Now they're starting to clamp down on this. I don't think the province saw this coming. They didn't really know quite what to do with it. And like all things, we're living and learning. Uh, so is this about lack of initial regulation or piggies at the trough? Well, perhaps a little bit of both. So those companies, those private companies, now remember, uh, OLG, the Ontario Lottery Corporation, you can bet on individual games through them, but they also allowed the private sector to come in with a cut going to the government. And those private sector companies are very, very good at promoting their services. They're very slick at what they do, and they've had lots of experience doing it in various states in the United States. So those companies came in and used their exact same practices here that they were using there. And I just think we didn't really quite understand what we were doing when we took the lid off as the Ontario government. And so now we're playing catch up. It's interesting, though, uh, when it comes to product placement, I mean, I guess this is a completely different industry. But as again, I'll go back to the analogy. You don't see Ron McLean and everybody at the desk sipping uh, Coors beer and eating KFC chicken and then commenting on it. Um, so why would the gaming industry think that now we can go in over and above the celebrities and whatever? I'm coming at it from a different angle. Think that right. we could actually go into the programming and have segments with the professional commentators and people who make up odds and such and saying, well, you give me the expertise, we're going to see what the odds are. That's a whole different, that's beyond product placement. Well, that's, well, I, it's still product placement, but it's taken to an extreme level. You're absolutely right. And, and I didn't see this coming. I didn't think the broadcast, whether it's TSN or Sportsnet or even CBC, would be interested in going down this road in part because I don't bet on these games. I don't feel it's bettable. In other words, I think the outcome is pretty random as we go. Who's going to get injured in the first period or the second quarter or or whatever? I don't I don't know. And therefore, I enjoy watching the game, but I don't feel the need to bet on it. Uh, so I sort of assumed they would be independent. But instead, it turns out they're giving the consumers what they want. The fans wanted to hear this kind of commentary. If they don't, they would turn it off and they'd give negative feedback. But clearly. The fans enjoy hearing uh, Ron McLean or others talking about where the better odds are and which ones they like and who they think are better. What, how they do it, how they process it, only a gambler knows for sure. Do Canadians really like it? Because at the end of the day, we are where we are. That's because Canadians complained. Well, compl some Canadians have complained. And so in both cases, the cannabis industry and the gambling industry, the government walks a fine line. They would like to get as much revenue as they can from this business. But on the other hand, they don't want to be seen as either promoting people to consume cannabis or promoting people to get into gambling. We also know that in both cases, if you overindulge, that could lead to other social problems. So they're trying to find that middle ground. And this is where I think in both cases, the government is experimenting. 
there, it will never be right for everybody, but to find the ones you get the balancing point. So personally, I would like to see the television programming cut back on the gambling side of it. But uh, that's me. I'm not a gambler. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about the changes to sports betting advertising come February. No more celebrities and athletes. Marvin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. I will. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ontario's Integrity Commissioner has found that Housing Minister Steve Clark broke ethic rules for his role in the Ford government's Greenbelt land swap. In a blistering 166-page report, J. David Wake said that the way the province went about removing uh, acres from the Greenbelt was marked by uh, misinterpretation, unnecessary hastiness, and deception. The Integrity Commissioner's report agreed with a previously uh, previous account from Ontario's Auditor General, which suggested Ryan Amato, Clark's recently resigned Chief of Staff, spearheaded the process. Responsibility for that, the Integrity Commissioner suggested, lands right on the door of the minister, and of course it does. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, here now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, thank you, Scott. So is it obvious at this time, Henry, I mean, it, it, that the minister's got to step down, got to got to walk away from this? Well, certainly uh, by, uh, by, by tradition, when, when somebody like the, uh, the integrity commissioner says that he has uh, done something wrong in terms of uh, one of the basic principles of, uh, of how policy is made, and just to be clear, so people understand what he what what the what the main problem is. A, a member of parliament of the provincial provincial parliament cannot do anything that improperly uh, may, uh, is a financial benefit for somebody else. So that it has to there's rules by which you can do that. Uh, obviously, the government can do things that that do do uh, you know that do benefit certain people but you have to do it on uh, in an o- open way a way is transparent and and a way in which it allows uh, people to uh, s- uh, testify and to talk about whether they think it's a good or a bad idea fair or unfair and all of this is was done very secretly uh and uh that that's that's the core of the thing and that's and basically the uh he recommends what the harshest penalty, which is not all that harsh in a way, uh, is recommended, and that is for the uh, members of the legislature to censure uh, the cabinet minister. So they can't actually make get rid of them, but uh, well, I suppose they could if some of the conservative members joined with the other parties. But the, they, they, you know, in this particular case, uh, he doesn't have to step down. But it's very well, but it goes against uh, the tradition and the ways. Uh, of doing things, and uh, basically, I think the it, all of the members want the trust uh, uh, people to trust what's going on in the legislature. And if he doesn't step down, then it's going to look like he just got away with something. I was just about to ask you what you thought we would hear next from the premier, but as you're talking, I just got a breaking news alert. Uh, the Ford government says it has started the process to return a parcel of land to the Greenbelt after its owners listed it for sale. The former Greenbelt lands located around Kingston Road and Highway 401 were listed for sale earlier in August. Uh, blah, 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 blah. So now, uh, and at no time was that the intention. So now that has officially been done. Do you think the timing is coincidental here? Well, the, this is the problem of where, unfortunately, you have a, a, a leader and uh, has uh, Ford uh, has want to do something good, build houses. I think we all agree that we need more housing in in Ontario, but there's there's ways of doing it that that uh, that uh, are the way you're supposed to do a public policy and 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 transparency and letting people. Uh, voice their opinion one way or another, whether it's a good w- good way to do it, and uh, basically uh, that wasn't done. But the, the those two parcels you're talking about really are uh, uh, it shows that the the um, decision to uh, do this policy was really in a way half baked because yeah, it's rushed it, it, because these people who were who said they they never bought the land to build any houses they 
they're clearly they're clearly land speculators and they've been very yeah. honest about it because they say they don't build houses that's not what they do what they do is they buy a, a piece of property and they hope that it's going to be you know worth more at some point when and they can sell it for more money how much political hay can the opposition make out of this? Uh, Merritt Stiles just said this is the biggest breach of trust uh, in Ontario history. Many would say the housing crisis would be that that got us here. Uh, that being said, uh, as she talked, uh, as she continued on, she said uh, her objective was to return the land or those lands to the Greenbelt, said nothing about housing. Uh, at the end of the day, it seems the Conservatives will build on anything. The left won't build anywhere. And Anytime. Um, how do you how do you bring that together? Uh, how does the opposition uh, minister get their their licks in and their whips on to Ford, but also address the issue, as you pointed out, at the end of the day, whether this happens or not, we still have a massive housing shortage, which is a self-inflicted wound. Well, I think basically the, 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 there are ways in which you can build the housing. I mean, in many of our cities and including even our biggest cities, uh, there's there's a lot of vacant land. Uh, that uh, is lying around. You could go, I mean, you can go to the city of Hamilton and you can see there are uh, a lot of parking lots that are partially filled. There's a lot of uh, derelict buildings around. The, yeah, but uh, landfill, uh, infill is only one spoke in this issue. It's, it's, it's a great issue, but it's only one and it won't solve the issue. And again, what the Greenbelt discussion has really done is brought into attention. Well, where is all that 20 to 40 years worth of land that is alternative and we don't have to use the Greenbelt? And why was that not developed? And I think the, the whole Greenbelt debate is really putting, uh, focus on, well, why hasn't the other land been developed? Yeah, well, one of the things, one of the big problems for government, of course, is they, under the, their own policies or lack of policies, they don't, they don't do anything that really gives an incentive for a lot of people to uh, uh, build on their property. A lot of people yeah. buy pr- uh, property uh, and they speculate on it, and they, th- mm-hmm. they think that well, maybe something will happen and and it'll be worth more, and I'll, I'll sell it. Given the, you know, like a, the LRT in Hamilton, a lot of people have come in and bought property along the line. And they're just waiting for that for the LRT to be built, and they they speculate, and probably with good reason, that that land is going to be worth a lot more once the LRT is up and running. So, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not really builders; they're not really people who are going to build uh, buildings and and uh, that and housing, and, and particularly affordable housing. So it's a. Uh, The government just doesn't build the houses. It has to have cooperation from the building community. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, a blistering report coming out from uh, the Integrity Commissioner that the housing minister broke ethics rules in the Greenbelt land swap. Henry, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Good day to you. 428, news on the way. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've heard a bit about this, and that is a Stony Creek uh, landfill, which uh, has a lot of the residents who are within breathing distance very upset. Last night, a community meeting was held at Stony Creek to address the concerns from residents who have tolerated a terrible odor coming from a landfill, which they say is interfering with daily life in their area. To talk more about all of this, Crystal Cush is with us, resident who lives across the road from the source of the smell. And with us now, Crystal, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you for having me. So how bad is it and how bad or how long has it been that bad? Uh, so I moved here last year. Um, I did smell it frequently last year but it's definitely gotten worse this summer this summer I can pretty much expect it just to smell every evening and it's not always the same smell either like sometimes we get a smell where it just smells like burning rubber other times it smells like gas on Sunday was probably the worst day I've experienced yet and it was so bad that I lit every candle in the house I kept spraying everything my kids were gagging even inside the house it just smelled like it smelled like old urine is the best way I could smell it. And that's pretty much the conclusion everybody in our area came to was everybody just said it smelled like urine. So you've only been there for about a year or so. I understand the landfill's been there for a while. Is this just a recent thing or has this always been a problem? So I have people that that I've spoken to personally that have said that they've lived here since 2019 and it's always been a problem. Other people said it just wasn't as often but definitely if I would have known this is what I was going to be dealing with obviously I wouldn't have 
chose to live here. And like I said, I see the plants directly from my front door. I can see their their driveway to go in. So I'm probably one of the closest people to the plant. Um, and it's just, it's honestly, it's just getting worse and worse every day. So obviously a meeting last night. Um, I know you weren't there, but what, what, what are you hearing from the city? What are you hearing from the company? Is there any relief inside? What are they telling you? They keep trying to justify it and they make it sound like so many things are in motion, but yet we haven't saw proof of anything. Um, last night, I think the biggest concern that people had was everybody they're making it sound like they're doing so much but the uh district manager of the moe actually his name stephen burt he made a comment that infuriated everybody there he made a comment saying that if he was to live here he would have done his due diligence before moving here so wow <laughs> wow yeah i bet that went over really well yeah yeah so so shame on you people for buy so shame on yeah. you people for buying a house near our plant yeah right that's that's what you want to hear about what was going on at the meeting and watch certain videos that's that's the number one comment that everybody related to me was we cannot believe he had the nerve to say that to us basically putting the blame on us for for not knowing what was what we were going to be dealing with how far an area does it travel how big an area is is this a real issue in? i mean because like what do you do don't buy don't buy a house in stony creek i mean come on where where's the boundary here where's the smell boundary i moved here in march and i didn't the three four times that we came to the house before we moved in i didn't smell them i didn't have that those smells yeah. and then literally within a month of moving here it was like oh my god like that's terrible what is it um, and, but I actually have been to people's houses near Quigley, near Eastgate, and I've been like, wow, that's the same smell, just not as strong. Mm. Like, oh. So they just, they just kind of, they can ignore it a little bit, but up here it's the same smell, just much, much stronger. Wow. So why is this happening now? I mean, I understand that they're expanding uh, the landfill, so they're regurgitating or stirring yeah, up so a lot of the issue. Is that what's happening? Yeah, so what, uh, what's been related to us is basically that they're digging up things that are like 100 years old now, so they don't really know what they're digging up at this point. It's been there so long, and I guess that's what this, they're saying the smell is. But at the same time, there was also another comment made by another city official. I can't remember the name, but he made a comment along the lines of, well, if they don't release it, the plant will explode. So, <laughs> like, it wow. explode because of toxins. But they yeah. can only allowed to release into the air for us to breathe in. I bet maybe you need maybe you need one of those big stacks like they have down at the steel plant just to burn the stuff off. I don't know. Um, I know Hamilton's not known for its fresh air, but this is yeah, this is it's a bit level. much. So, what does the city say about this? They just they keep every meeting that happens. Brad Clark, he he sounds like he's doing a lot of work. I don't know how much because nothing's actually getting done. Um, but he's pretty involved in our Facebook groups and is always there for like our comments and our concerns. And I have my emails have basically challenged them to come camp out and spend a couple nights here and see how long they'll last before they run back mm. to their nice houses. Um, but he's really the only one that responds to those. And he has, he's been here, he's smelt it. He's made the comments like he doesn't know what he would do if he lived here. So um, and he actually he actually did say that he smells it from where he lives now. So I'm not sure exactly the location on that, but he does understand how like it's so much stronger now that it's traveling further and further into the city. Um, but like I said, we haven't had any proof of anything being done, just and verbally telling us that it's not harming us. But I think we all call bull on that because I see yeah. the daily effects of what it causes me and my children. Like I'm a mom to five, and we can't even enjoy our outdoor activities. I can't have my daughter's birthday party in our backyard because I'm too embarrassed or too concerned over the smell. Uh, you got to think that somebody's got to be held accountable for this because if the plant was allowed to expand, why was there no knowledge of when we expand, this is what's going to or may happen, it could release this. I mean, if you're going in and, and stirring all this up, somebody must have known that this was going to create an issue. Absolutely. There's no way that they didn't, and I'm sure from what I'm guessing is I'm I would assume that they're just trying to hurry up and get it done before they can actually get the proof that they would need in order for anything to be closed down. So I think if they're just trying to rush to get it done, that way the smell's done and over with and everybody will stop complaining. But 
I don't think it's just from the expansion because those smells did happen before the expansion started. But when these houses in our communities were built, the builders were told that GFL was closing. Mm. So now from them saying that they're going to close to expand is that so everybody, the comment that he made the other day was kind of a slap in the face because we did do our due diligence. We just, we were told they were closing. Should do this on the green belt. At least it would be fertilizer. No, I don't want to be smart about this. Did they give you an end date for this, Crystal? Like, you know, there were, this work is going on, but by this time it should be better. Nope. It's just every every meeting, it's pretty much the same thing, just telling us to be patient. They're working on it. But like I said, I think by the time that they actually get anything done, they'll be done expanding and then what? Crystal Cush with us, resident who lives across the road from the source of the smell, uh, Stony Creek uh, Landfill, and the residents around it who have been tolerating a terrible odor coming from the landfill as uh, it starts to expand. Uh, Crystal, thanks for the information. Good luck with all of this. Keep us posted. Uh, We'll do as much as we can. Good luck. Will do. Thank you. Several Ontario universities are removing course location and other information from their public websites as a safety measure as faculty representatives look to be more involved in efforts to prevent harassment and hate crimes on campus. The move to pull some information from public pages comes after a triple stabbing at the University of Waterloo Gender Studies class back in June, when police, uh, which police described as a hate-motivated attack. Is this the answer? Is Can we do more? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, and here now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. It's been a while, Scott. How have you been? So far, so good. And you know, it is, well, maybe there's politics here, but at least not of the federal or provincial kind, so that's cool. Uh, this was a, 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 you know, a tragic scenario that happened in a gender class. And I guess my first reaction to pulling the course information, and, and, and I'm not saying that this isn't a good idea, but do we know that if this person got that information from these sources or did they just know about the class? Yeah, we don't, to the best of my knowledge. I mean, was this a random attack in the sense that he just basically showed up and targeted anything he felt was offensive to him in a sense that a gender studies program? I don't have the facts at hand, Scott. And, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about online hate and online extremism, and that's very worrisome, absolutely. But you can't tie online extremism to real-world events. That's what I learned when I worked at CSIS. The vast majority of people who posted stupid things online didn't do anything about them. And the challenge that we had was to identify the real actors from the, the fake ones. So I think we need more information in terms of how this act was planned. And it is a, an extreme move. Uh, it'll certainly make it harder for people to find out where these courses are, uh, both people who should, who want to take them as well as those who might want to disrupt them. Yeah, you have to wonder if it's more harm than help. I, I certainly understand where they're coming from, um, but is it the answer? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, when, when you work in security, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And, you know, the, the one sort of thing that hangs around your neck is this notion that you're only as good as your last failure. So you can stop all the attacks or, you know, incidents in the world, but fail to stop one and someone gets, you know, hurt or killed. And then you you wear that blame forever. So it probably is a knee-jerk reaction to overreact in this case. But again, without having all the facts at hand, it's hard to say if in this particular instance that they're doing too much. Again... <laughs> To me, Scott, the bottom line is that this this fear and panic over, you know, right wing or whatever you want to call it extremism, which is real, by the way, is making us think in ways that maybe aren't that helpful. Because, again, the incidence of actual attacks uh, is still quite low in Canada. And I think we have to bear that in mind. Uh, Some schools already doing this. Do you think this will become the new norm? Why give out information if you don't need to? Well, it certainly could. But then, as I said, what happened to the free uh, flow of information? Um, how do you find out what universities are offering? How do you, you know, register legitimate criticism over maybe instructors or, or content and stuff? I mean, if we start policing everything, then nothing's available. So, again, you know, no one wants something bad to happen. No one wants a repeat of the staff at University of Waterloo. But I think we have to be really, really careful in the measures that we take to not overreact and to not make the situation any worse. Uh, obviously, campus security ha- has been an issue on on many fronts, and in with the school year starting, it's it's a focus again. Is it, are are there obvious things that universities should be doing and doing more of, from your perspective? Wow, what a great question! You know, when I worked at you know for CSIS, we didn't normally deal at that level with university security, and I remember you and I both you know you know 
it in the university, Scott. We know what campus security was like, kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> have things changed? Maybe. Um, but there are a lot of demonstrations in the 60s and 70s that could have turned violent with the far left kind of thing. You know, I mean, ideally, you'd want to share good information, i.e. intelligence with university security. There's huge issues about that in terms of security clearances and protection of information. I, I just want to see a dialogue. I want to see a dialogue between those who are responsible for security at colleges and universities uh, and people who are practitioners, be it law enforcement or security intelligence, who work in this area can better advise them as to the, the, the measures they should take. Uh, is this an easy thing to do? Is this a quick fix, low-hanging fruit, which was obviously a very disturbing event? I think so. I mean, you know, I'm sure it doesn't take a rocket scientist to take stuff off a web page and to, you know, make it more difficult to find out where courses are being held, who's teaching them and the content of those courses. But again, I think when you do so, you remove legitimate information for people who have a legitimate interest in taking those courses. I don't think it was, was something that was hard to do. Um, the question that becomes, if something else happens, I, and God forbid it does, what's the next step that you're going to take? Mm. I, again, I don't have an answer to that question. So maybe they see it as a, a sort of a box to tick. We've done this. We think it'll make a difference. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I guess only time will tell. But again, bottom line, Scott, these kinds of events are very, very rare in Canada, historically and at the present. And I, I just I caution people to not sort of try and think, you know, the, the world's coming to an end and we're going to see these things much more frequently. Can we do more to screen individuals or does that become an issue of human rights? Well, it, you know, you really open up a Pandora's box, I think, yeah. of, you know, what is legitimate protest? What is legitimate questioning? We've all seen, Scott, where people are being pilloried for asking legitimate questions because you're yeah. on the wrong side of the debate right now. Screening is a huge issue. I mean, obviously, in security intelligence, screening is really important. But I don't know how you do that in a population of 40 million people. I, I think that you've basically you, you cross that bridge. Boy, you're, you're, you better have an incredible amount of resources to do that kind of thing. Bill Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst university, is pulling course information from their public websites in order to protect faculty and students from violent attacks. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talked about this the other day, and uh, we have at various times uh, over the years, and, and it seems to be um, uh, certainly more prevalent now than it has been in the past. But new polling from the Association for Canadian Studies shows that Canadian youth have a grim outlook on the future, and many think uh, think that they will not do as well as uh, their parents have done, and even those saying, we'd rather live somewhere else whether they're residents or immigrants that have just arrived. Let's bring in Paul Hawley, Research Director with the Association for Canadian Studies, and here now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks, Scott. How are you doing? But good. Uh, thanks for asking. You know, we uh, before we get to the actual numbers and, and what the trends are, are you surprised, or what surprises you about the results here? Well, it's a little bit surprising in that if we look at previous numbers, previous data, we, we generally see a trend that um, children – and the parents always think the next generation is going to do better than the previous generation. And what we're seeing uh, right now is that there's there's less belief in that uh, traditionally. If you think about the traditional American dream, or, or in this case, the Canadian dream, uh, that, that we're going to do better than the previous generation, that dream's somewhat dissipating right now. Is it naive to think that uh, we should be better off than our parents, or is that simply progress? And if we're not, we're not progressing. Well, uh, it'd be nice to think that we could always do better than the previous generation, but the, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of uh, conditions in, in our society right now which maybe prevent that from happening. If you think about things like you know, the rising housing costs uh, or the inability to even find housing, um, a higher cost of borrowing and inflation, um, it's really leading, these types of economic factors are really leading to a rise in pessimism amongst our, our youth and, and uh, older generations as well. Is this new? Have we ever been through a period like this where, you know, whether it's a world war or whatever, where we have been worse off or, or not as well off as, as the generation before? Typically, uh, I mean, if you could look all the way back to the Great Depression, although um, in the 20s, they, they probably couldn't see that happening. Um, but you, you really kind of see a difference in, in between uh, Gen X and Gen Y. Um, if you think about baby boomers, 
uh, where they typically emphasize this work-life balance uh, was, it was more about the work. It was more about finding your calling, doing your job and, mm-hmm. and dedicating your, your life to your career. Where we see more of the Gen Y, those are the born, born and more in the digital age um, or millennials, really uh, focusing on, constant, on on the balance between uh, the two, work-life balance. And uh, this might be an oversimplification, but um, with the rise of the digital age, there's always more ways of getting rich quick, or at least the belief that there is. And maybe that's uh, not working out so well for everybody. So uh, quality of life come at the expense of success? Well, it's the, the idea is to balance those. So whereas before, the generations before, they're, they're focused more on success. Uh, it was more about providing for the right. family, making sure you had everything uh, that you needed. Uh, I think there's a lot more, uh, even even post-COVID, we saw that it was difficult filling positions in workplaces across across Canada and other countries too. So it's more about making sure that you're ready uh, physically, mentally, and um, yeah, looking for that balance, making sure that you have a, a good balance of work and life. Is it possible to have that balance and still and still be successful? Is it is it possible to have both? That's a good question. Um, me personally, I think it is. Uh, that being said, there's there's not as many opportunities per se uh, as there, there has been in the past, yeah. at least as perceived by Canadians. Uh, especially um, what we're finding is that the older generations today, they're very skeptical that their that their children are going to do better. Um, the only group that really thinks mm. they're going to do better are the really young, the younger group, eighteen to twenty-four, eighteen. More optimistic, they have uh, they'll have better outcomes than their parents did. Uh, but even then, that's only talking about one in three uh, compared to if you look at say sixty-five plus, about three out of four of them think that they're going to do better that they did better than their future generations will ever do. I can kind of understand that, Paul, because I've had this discussion with my kids who are late teens, early 20s. And post-pandemic, I've said to that group and their friends, they are at a very uh, uh, interesting point because the world has changed and they're just starting, which obviously is a bit easier than being a millennial and halfway through and all of a sudden have the the life or the landscape uh, completely change around you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And obviously with uh, things were didn't help with uh, the current pa- or the previous pandemic that we just went through. A lot of other things that are happening in our workforce. Uh, you know, immigration has always been tied to this this notion of the American dream or the Canadian dream. And uh, for the first time, we're really seeing that um, immigrants um, and their families are not as uh, they're not as hopeful for the future. And we even see some of them who come here. Um, about one in one in five are saying that they don't want to stay here. One in four are saying they don't want to stay here once they do get here because of the economic prospects are just not that great. It's hard to find work. It's hard to find uh, housing. It's interesting you say that, Paul, because uh, you know I, I'm I, I'm 60 uh, Canadian through and through. My parents, oh, they loved America. We wanted a Canadian identity, but now I'm hearing young people say, ah, "Canada's not for me. I'm going to go someplace else." We're seeing a rise in that, which to me is pretty surprising. I think, yeah, it's it's all tied to what we're seeing. Um, we've seen recent trends with uh, Cancel Canada and uh, not celebrating uh, certain uh, historic events. Um, so it, it, it's all part of that narrative, certainly. But if you look back, uh, you know, if you look at census data 20 years ago, let's say, or the 2001 census, something like 75% of permanent residents expected they would become a citizen of Canada within the first 10 years of arriving in Canada. Now that number is below half, we're, we're at like 46% according to the most recent census. So we've seen a, a plummeting of uh, those who are actually going to take up citizenship. Paul Hawley with us, Research Director with the Association for Canadian Studies. New polling for the Association for Canadian Studies show Canadians have a grim outlook on the future and won't have what their parents did or have. Paul, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and a former diplomat at the uh, at the embassy, the Canadian embassy in Beijing. And his latest in the Globe and Mail, China's growing economic angst is another political threat for Xi. Uh, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. As China, uh, China's economy tanks in dramatic fashion, there are growing signs that is scrambling to avoid any civil unrest fanned by the downturn. Earlier this month, after seven consecutive months of rising youth unemployment, Beijing announced it will stop releasing job statistics for young people, but leaders are concerned by more than the specter of a fr- 
frustrated urban youth staging public demonstrations against the Chinese Communist Party. Another time bomb is the disintegration of China's housing and real estate sector in medium and small cities where a growing number of people have prepaid for apartments that may never get built. To talk more about all of this, Charles Burton is with us, fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. It's good to speak with you. So, Charles, is it possible to rebel against uh, this president? Is it possible to rebel against uh, um, an authoritarian state? What do you do? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, they monitor dissent extremely carefully. And so, you know, if and also communications are monitored, so it's hard to coordinate a, a demo. But you know, with such a high proportion of young high school and university graduates unable to get work, ending up living with their parents with really no prospects. Um, and it appears, you know, significant concern inside the country. Uh, you know, we saw the mysterious disappearance of the Chinese foreign minister, Qin Gong. We've seen um, senior military commanders who have disappeared, some of whom have subsequently been um, um, replaced by by Xi loyalists, all of this suggests that, you know, it's possible that there is a movement inside China that suggests that Mr. Xi is not the best person to be running things, and therefore there should be some political change. And I think one of the factors that really feeds into this and is probably related to the, the military disruption is whether or not to detract from China's economic um, uh, serious issues that have recently, you know, come to the fore. In other words, we've seen articles in the Financial Times, the New York Times, The Economist, the Wall Street Journal, all talking about how China's issues economically seem to be intractable and and the regime's unable to resolve them. But, you know, the issue is the one that we've talked a lot about in this program, is whether she would decide to detract from what's going on in China by by engaging in in some sort of military action to um, inspire loyalty and nationalism in the Chinese population, and that would really be about um, a move to annex Taiwan, which you know could be disastrous for China, disastrous for Taiwan, and disastrous for the peace of the world. So, you know, the, the situation is looking pretty grim, and it it's sort of hard to believe it because China did so well for so long economically, and one just assumed that they'd go on forever and People were always projecting that China would become the dominant economic power on the planet. Looks like that's not in the cards now. Uh, that's an interesting point that you make. Um, uh, so you don't think the government will react against the people, but it will react with an event like a Taiwan in order just to say, much like the Russians down a plane with the Wagner group aboard it, um, the action speaks volumes as opposed to actually addressing the people. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it could be that the disruption inside the military, you know, like people, senior military commanders suddenly disappearing is not a good sign. It suggests instability and possible opposition to Mr. Xi. I mean, they're always claiming that they're corrupt or something morally debased, but I don't think that that's the most likely factor. And it could be that the military, which is required to be loyal to the Chinese Communist Party uh, and not loyal to the state, Maybe, um, you know, feeling that they would prefer to be a political, a, a professional military that would be responsible for the security and defense of China and not a military which is, you know, involved in the Chinese Communist Party's overall um, domestic and global agenda. So, you know, I think that for a lot of the military, they they recognize that the geostrategic circumstances are just not there for China to successfully annex Taiwan, but maybe Mr. Xi, if if he's feeling desperate and feeling that his his grasp on power is being threatened, might engage in some adventurous activity that would be very risky and could lead to disaster for China. So, you know, there there are all these issues around. Once you've got an an autocratic dictator who's managed to purge all his political rivals, presumably surrounded by sycophants and yes men. You know, you're in a you're in a, a a sensitive situation, and let's not forget, China is a nuclear power, so they have they have atomic bombs, and God help us if you know if those would be used. So, how do you make change in China? Does it have to involve the military? Would it come from the military then? I think it's the military is really the only uh, 
the, the only real power. You know, Chairman Mao said that power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And I think really when you're looking at China, it's largely a military regime. You know, the, the military is extremely important in that country. And we don't know a lot about what's going on in terms of factions inside the military or indeed, um, you know, inside the Communist Party. What about all those people who have lost their positions and influence because she has decided to replace them with his own people? That situation of the foreign ministry, Chin Gong, that was someone who was clearly a Xi man who had been what they refer to as helicoptered up. He had an extremely rapid transition through the ranks from a Chinese ambassador to the United States to foreign minister. Normally, you you don't skip a, all those steps to get there. But the fact that he disappeared, never to be heard of again so far anyway, suggests that you know she is not able to 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 be in complete control of personnel anymore, and that could be a, a, a bad sign for him if if alternate um, power factions start to form. You could see uh, a lot of political instability, and Mr. Xi's days could be numbered. And you know, the retirement plan for autocratic uh, strongman dictators is not uh, pleasant. Uh, you know, life in retirement in the countryside. It's uh, it's uh, prison. Um, we remember 20 years ago that when China was viewed as the golden goose, it was always about earning their trust. They have to trust us. We have to kowtow to them and, 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 and gain their trust. Now it seems the other way around. Um, uh, now that she has ticked off many that he's traded with in the West, how does he spin it around? Cause this is hurting them economically. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think we'll ever get into a situation where foreign investors will regain their trust in in operations in China. You know, it's sort of once bitten, twice shy. And that whole issue of confidence in the Chinese economy is, you know, strong inside China. The the housing market has cratered. People put a lot of their of their savings into housing because, you know, what else could you invest in, in China that would be reliable? The stock market is certainly not not going to be a trustworthy place to put your, you know, to put your hard earned savings. And so all of a sudden, a lot of people are finding that their savings have been have been debased significantly, and wonder how they're going to survive in retirement, or if they if they uh, encounter illness or something like that. So, you know, trust is really the key here, and and there is not a lot of trust of Mister Xi. Didn't help that he you know he lied mm. backwards and forwards over COVID, both domestically and internationally, and now of course the propaganda is suggesting the economy is just fine. And everybody knows that that's not true. All right. Charles Burton with us. The latest, his latest in the Globe and Mail, China's growing economic angst is another political threat for Xi. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Good to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. What is Canada? It's a country of sunny days. So sunny that the forests catch on fire. It's a country where deficits take care of themselves. It's a country where people who build houses are homeless. It's a country where phys ed teachers are obese. It's a country where there will not be enough taxpayers to pay striking government employees. It's a country where age-acquired wisdom is canceled for generational nearsightedness. It's a country where greenwashing has become mainstream to increase taxes. I'm sure we could go on. 